Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. It's the start of a brand new week here on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. It's May 17th. We're midway through uh, the month, and as uh, all of you just heard on NPR News, it's tax day. For all of you who have uh, been procrastinators, I hope you get a chance to turn your taxes in today. The, the whole process is incredibly complicated by the pandemic um, because there are so many uh, questions about what's taxable, what's not, or the bailout payments you got taxable. So good luck, everybody, in uh, figuring that out at the, la- at the last minute if you have to do that. We have a lot to talk about on the show today, in part because, as most of you who listen regularly know, last Thursday and Friday we did special shows um, featuring conversations about two great leaders in Georgia. On Thursday, C.T. Vivian. On Friday, we talked about a new documentary about Jimmy Carter. So we're going to catch up on a number of important political headlines and then talk about immigration with a panel that has an enormous amount of expertise in that area. It's Monday, which means that I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Jim Galloway, former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. How are you, Jim? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. Uh, And let me give a quick shout-out to Max Cleland, who I am told is listening this morning. Uh, So, hello, Max. Great. Max Cleland. I haven't uh, had a chance to talk to him. I know you stay in regular contact with him. So, Max, thanks for listening to the show this morning. Um, We're joined by uh, Mariella Romero. She's the Community Empowerment Director for Univision and hosts her own show on Univision. Mariella, how are you? Good morning. How are you? Everything is good here. I'm glad glad you could be with us today. Of course, I'm glad to see Chuck Cook who is one of the top immigration attorneys in the country, uh, not only dealing with helping advise businesses on how to deal with their immigration issues, but really for the purposes of this show, and perhaps more important, all of the work he does uh, in the immigration community as an advocate for sound immigration policies. Chuck, you and I have known each other for a very long time. And so when I think about introducing you, I don't look up your biography. But I thought this morning earlier, you know, I really probably should. And one of the things I learned that I've never known before is that you have the single most listened to podcast on immigration issues in the United States and do a blog uh, that's similar to that. What's the name of the podcast? The podcast is called The Immigration Hour. It's on all your regularly listened to podcast places. <laughs> and uh, um, and uh, the, the blog is called Musings on Immigration. It's fun. I mean, it's just a fun thing that we do, and uh, it lets me get my uh, my my political out there. It's a lot of fun. Podcasts, as you know, are are great. They're a lot of fun to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the immigration hour. Um, very creative, Chuck. I, I can see that <laughs> yeah, you're. Well, you know, I'm, I am a lawyer after all. You know, <laughs> I need to, I need to get my media I, friends to spice that up a little bit. Well, I'm, it's good to know. I'm looking forward to checking it out. I saved Renee Alegria for last uh, for a reason. Uh, you've heard him on the show on a number of occasions. He's the president and CEO of Mundo Hispanico Digital. And, Renee, I saved you for last 
uh, and NPR News sort of gave it away, but we always ask you, what is the single most popular story? What's got the biggest clicks on Mundo Hispanico Digital on any given day? And those of us who are in politic in the world of politics, journalists like all of us are, except we, you know, cook an attorney dealing with immigrants. We think of ourselves as being in such a rarefied atmosphere, talking about such weighty issues. What was number one on your website today, Renee? Well, so if you heard that really, really loud noise last night around 10 p.m., <laughs> that was the sound of about 200 million Mexicans jumping for joy that they won the Miss Universe crown. So. That has been the number one story at Mundo Hispanico. And uh, as a Mexican-American myself, uh, there is uh, pride in that title. Yeah, we, we know that, um, as you one of you said before the show, you know, uh, Venezuela has had a lock on that competition for a very long time. So congratulations to Mexico. Andrea Meza is a model, a software engineer, and a makeup artist. She is a triple threat, so congratulations. Um, Jim, let's get serious. We've got a lot to talk about today. I'd, I'd like to start, if I may, with the fact that late last week, Governor Kemp announced and joined governors of Republican Party in a number of states around the country in saying he was not going to pass on from the feds the $200, I'm sorry, $300 supplemental unemployment payment that goes out to people who are on unemployment here in Georgia. He says it's an incentive to get people to go out and start looking for jobs. The state of Georgia Labor Department says they have thousands and thousands of jobs unfilled, and uh, this is the incentive to get people going. Yes, Jim? Uh, well, first of all, it, it, it's, it's not an incentive. Uh, it's not the carrot. It's the stick. Uh, uh, and and uh, he's uh, the governor said he was responding responding to a lot of small business owners who were who were uh, who who have told him that they have been un unable to find find work. Uh, it's it's kind of where uh, uh, there's some indication from his office that he might be actually uh, willing to consider what might be uh, what are actual incentives. Uh, like, oh, I mean, in Ohio, Governor DeWine has uh, has 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 made vaccination a, a uh, put put it on uh, made it part of the lottery. Uh, you know, if you're vaccinated and you can prove it, you know, you're in in a one million dollar pool, uh, and you may win. So just something to encourage people to get vaccinated, which would help the work uh, kind of people get more comfortable with going back to work. I'm curious to know, and I I, I don't I, we don't have a really quick uh, a, a real accurate uh, current reading on it. How many of 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 uh, how much of this labor shortage in Georgia is due to female workers, women? Mothers who cannot afford, who who don't have the infrastructure to go back to work, the the, the childcare is missing, the support, the, the 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 daily school attendance is missing, uh, so so I think that could be a very mar uh, large piece of what we're looking at. Um, Mariella, the assumption behind this uh, has been uh, uh, promoted by Republicans for quite some time. They opposed this added federal unemployment benefit when it was uh, first uh, introduced, uh, because the assumption is people who get more money from unemployment now, uh, maybe than they could from their jobs, would rather stay home and not work 
at all. It's an interesting subjective judgment, Mariella. It truly is subjective, and I think uh, it needs to be more carefully researched. Uh, studies have been done, and people are looking to go back to work, but the infrastructure is not there, especially for uh, women, for uh, mothers, uh, people who are taking care of elderly parents. So a lot of women, like Kim said, have been uh, tremendously affected by the pandemic because we are typically uh, the caregivers. So although I see the business side is, is, is real, that they're looking for uh, jobs, but you know, a lot of those jobs that are looking for uh, are for working in warehouses or low paying jobs. And a lot of professionals also lost their jobs and they're looking for that same level of jobs they had pre-pandemic. So, you know, it, it's very easy to say, oh, that $200 is the culprit, but I think they need to um, take a, a look to to see the real causes why the shortage is happening. You know, Renee, I saw a quote from a an unemployed young, younger woman uh, in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in an article about this, she said, you know, I didn't uh, lose a job working flipping hamburgers at McDonald's. I was in a professional role, and I frankly just don't remember what that role was. And she said, I'm looking to go back in a capacity that is, uh, uh, you know, comparable to what I've been doing in the past. And I think it's safe to say, and I I want to be careful because we have not heard any, uh, to the best of my knowledge, Republicans demonizing these people in the overt way that we used to hear them talk about welfare mothers who would rather stay home and collect checks from the government than have to go out and check. We haven't heard that kind of demonization, but I think it's hard not to think back to those days. Yeah, I, I do think that uh, there, was, there was actually a very interesting article in the New York Times over the weekend about the, the death of the concept of the welfare queen uh, as, 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 and it's been a quiet death uh, perpetuated via the Biden administration's uh, new policy. So I, I, I agree with you. I, I think this, this, this is complex, obviously. We don't know enough about the data that's coming out of, uh, you know, post-pandemic. I, I did think it was very interesting. There was a study out of California um, where 80 percent of unemployment applications filed in the state last month were from people who had been laid off, gotten a job, and then got laid off again. And I think repeat claims are particularly um, common, you know, with, with what, we're, what we're seeing, especially in the hard hit um, hotel, restaurant industries, construction. Uh, you're seeing a lot of that. So, you know, there's, there's going to be a, a dance uh, in the coming months is to see how this all shakes up. Chuck? You know, I have yet to meet a person who uh, can, that uh, says, I'm not going to take a job because I got an extra $300 a week from the federal government. Uh, I actually think this person doesn't actually exist uh, that, uh, that folks keep talking about. Uh, if they existed, I would imagine we'd see them on TV shows somewhere or we'd see them on a news station. I think this is one of those things where an enemy has to be created. A reason for not paying a living, living wage has to be created, so they create one. Uh, when reality is, um, 
I anybody can see that all these restaurants, especially services, they're they're looking for workers. But what a lot of what happened for a lot of people that had those jobs before the pandemic, they have gone back to work, but they've gone to places like factories or manufacturing places where they get paid a little bit more and the working conditions are better. Um, and I think you thing you touched on, Bill, I think is probably most problematic for women is childcare. Uh, you know, school some schools are not back in in session yet, and worse, summer vacation starting. So you're gonna, what are you going to do with your kids if there's no real child care opening up? So perhaps the governor will decide that instead of the $300 a week for extra money, maybe they'll create child care jobs and uh, be able to, to help moms take care of their kids so they can get back to work. Uh, Jim, to give the governor his due here, he says that he has been under enormous pressure from businesses, small businesses and, and large as well, uh, because their workforces are depleted. And, and they're, they've can't come to him and said, please, we've got to figure out a way to put people in jobs. Um, so the question is whether this is the right way to do it or not. But it isn't as if there isn't a significant problem now. And you've all given different reasons why it may be true that uh, the governor has chosen this approach to dealing with. But it is a problem, Jim. No, look, there, there's no question that it, that you've got to get the, 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 the economy humming. Uh, look, I, I would kind of point to uh, to 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 say maybe the re- restaurant industry on the cu- uh, customer level. You know, you, you, you're not seeing the, 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 the consumer traffic that you did pre-pandemic because you have a lot of people who are uncomfortable still with appearing in large crowds in, 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 in crowded places and indoor, play, uh, in, indoor places. I think you need to apply that same reasoning and the same psychology to employees. You've got a lot of people who are, because, because that vaccination rates are so low in Georgia, uh, that you've got a lot of employees who might be a, a very uncomfortable about bringing that back home to, and, and if you're poor, you're, you're, of course, you're dealing in many cases with multi-generational families that are extremely invulnerable. I, I do Renee? think that, uh, yeah, sure. I, I think that like with so many uh, things in the last year, uh, the pandemic has, has reshaped how the debate um, of, minimum wage, a living wage, what, what folks uh, on the front line, these essential workers, uh, actually make. Uh, so that needs to be addressed. And I think part of that, this discussion, leads into how we treat those essential workers. You know, the grocery clerks that are bagging our groceries, you know, they, they make minimum wage. What are we going to do about that? And I think these are the types of questions that the discussions like this um, are bringing about. Um, all right. This uh, new policy w- will take effect in mid-June. We'll watch to see how it unfolds as people lose that $300 check uh, and whether or not it does encourage people to go out and suddenly we see people entering the workforce who haven't been there for quite some time. Uh, Jim, let's move on. Uh, this weekend, there were convention, GOP conventions in uh, all but one uh, of the congressional districts in Georgia. There was a problem down in Savannah, which I think we're going to address on tomorrow's show when Adam Van Brimmer from the Savannah Morning News will be one of the people who is with us. In the meantime, uh, the headline out of these gatherings was that uh, 
Republican voters are energized. There were big, big crowds in most of these congressional district meetings, a lot of new people, and presumably many of them came because they are energized by the big lie that the election in Georgia and across the country was stolen by Democrats. Um, Democrats have been energized for some time. It's been a while since we've talked about how energized Republicans may be becoming. Yeah, this and 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 uh, look, uh, I'm a skeptic uh, when it when it comes to to kind of all eyeballing numbers. You did have very large crowds uh, at 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 13 of 14 congressional district meetings of of, of the state GOP, uh, and you know in a number of cases, you know uh, the, the the those attending were asked to raise their hands if they were if they were first time uh, first time participants, and you had a, a, a huge huge number of people raising their hands. I would posit that possibly you have another explanation for that other than Trump enthusiasm. You ha- you might have had a lot of Republicans who didn't show up on Saturday of traditional Republicans who skipped that weekend and decided their efforts were better their time was better spent doing something else uh, because I, I think I think you're going to you're going to see that 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 I mean part of the Republican problem is 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 the disaffection the the disaffection of of Republican women of 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 independents who lean GOP and I would I would say that that might be another explanation for what you saw on Saturday. You you mean that even though there were bigger numbers of people who apparently turned out because they're pro-Trump, you think that those Republicans who have been mainstays of the party are dissatisfied with what's going on. Let's make sure. I, th- that's I think what you, you're yes. I, th- I think I think you may have had a lot of people absenting themselves from these meetings, and so you know. So when you ask if who, how many, if you if you ask a room how many are first time uh, attendees, you're going to get a lot of uh, a lot of uh, I votes out of that one. Uh, but you you okay. do have you do have some uh, some uh, a problem with disaffection with with the Republican Party. Uh, uh, Chuck, uh, all of this is going to lead to the uh, election of a G- GOP state chair. David Schaefer is, of course, running for re-election to that post. Uh, Galloway sent around to all of us <laughs> a report that the state Republican Party put out in which uh, the uh, AJC makes the point, gee, if you read their uh, uh, you know, a reassessment, their assessment of what happened in the 2020 election cycle, you would never have thought that Donald Trump lost here in Georgia. Uh, um, Just a couple of quotes from it. Uh, Our massive field operation broke records in voter contact. We registered more voters, knocked on more doors, made more telephone calls than ever before. These efforts paid off with dramatic increases in Republican turnout. 373,000 more votes then in 2016, when Trump was first election, elected, 483,000 more votes than in 2018 when Brian Kemp led our ticket. It's a very slick report, and it's all pointed towards uh, David Schaefer's uh, masterful handling of a republic of an election that, oh right, Republicans lost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is that, that. There's that last that oh, but the Democrats stole the election from us anyway. Um, you know, it's uh, it's it's fascinating to see. Um, how the Republican Party in Georgia is literally ignoring 
facts. It's just ignoring an election outcome. And I think, frankly, they're terrified. I think the party is terrified of what's going to happen in 2022 when Stacey Abrams is back on the ballot um, against Brian Kemp. I mean, you know, people keep I have a lot of friends around the country who said, well, Stacey, she should be senator. She be, Stacey Abrams wants to be governor. I um, mean, I, I think that's just quite clear. And so this, there's going to be a massive turnout in the next election. But there's no explanation in the report about how they lost other than, well, the other side did better than us, which is the actual, okay, that's actually what happened. Um, it's, um, it's all designed to you know, sell the lie, keep, keep the, the false information going. And I think that's why you saw a good turnout at a lot of these uh, state, state, the Republican Party um, um, events this last weekend. It's those are the people who came out. People, some people are energized. But what they're not talking about is the party itself is getting smaller, especially nationwide. Uh, and that's got to be of great concern to those legitimate leaders of the Republican Party uh, who have to look to the future, uh, a post-Trump era. Mariella? Yeah, you know, uh, Jim, uh, one thing that I wonder is uh, where is um, Governor Mason Deal? Where is his wisdom in, in guiding the party? I think uh, the Republican Party in Georgia now is, is more on the wing of uh, former Governor Purdue, but I think Governor Deal was sounding the alarm about what just uh, Charles just mentioned, that the party is getting smaller. Um, and, but the party never did anything that Governor Mason Deal uh, said, you know, that they needed to expand uh, their reach and, and get more people, uh, diverse people involved in the GOP. So I, I don't know why uh, the GOP is, is going back to just, you know, their small base, and uh, you know, it, it seems like it is a is a small win. You know, those headlines that we're talking about that people are energized, but the people energized is a very small pool. So I don't know what the end game is here, and why they are not in the writing on the wall. Renee, one one well, sure one, one thing that I uh, a few things that I think uh, is important to note. Um, is, is just just the optics here. You know, you have you, you have uh, images of these small gatherings. Um, yeah, there are the, the room is full. What 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 you don't see, and what I think is is hugely important, is is young people getting involved and engaged. They don't do it in person. These folks don't don't go, show up physically into a room. They. Uh, they're they're online. They're on social media by the the hundreds of thousands here in Georgia, millions across uh, the United States, and I think that is something that uh, is certainly going to show up uh, in 2022. I mean, there was an 11 point increase in voter turnout from 2016 to 2020 um, in young people. For the first time, that myth of like young people don't vote, they're voting. Republicans certainly should be scared of what that wave represents to their future. Um, we have a lot more to talk about on today's show. This is a good time, though, to get our first break in. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit in continuing this conversation in a different context about congressional uh, efforts to, in some way, 
uh, take action against uh, Georgia Republicans Andrew Clyde and Jody Heiss for their most recent statements about the fake election and more. We'll do that after these messages. Jim Galloway, Mariella Romero, Renee Alegria, and Chuck Cook join us today. Um, Jim, before we move on, real final quick comment from you, since you were the one who called this to our attention. This post-election autopsy report that Republicans put out, um, in, in many ways, was an example of something that your successor at Political Insider, Patricia Murphy, coined an interesting phrase for uh, not long ago. She said, says, Republicans have moved from engagement to enragement. Now, it is absolutely true that Republican turnout was at record highs. It's just Democrats did better in the last election. And Republicans did very well in down-ballot races for legislature here and in Congress across the country. But it is also true that we really have in that party moved from engagement to enragement. Right, right. You don't, uh, uh, you don't explain your loss. You claim the other side cheated. And, and, you know, in, in a way, I, I know this is probably not the case in other areas of the country, but uh, here in the South, that sounds very Confederate. Uh, interesting. Okay. Uh, let's talk about Washington politics for a few minutes, but, but politics that impacts Georgia greatly. Um, Mariella, I'm going to play a soundbite. It's certainly gotten a lot of attention in the last few days from Athens congressional, uh, representative, a congressman, Andrew Clyde, who fairly recently in hearings uh, described the January 6th riot slash insurrection this way. There was no insurrection, and to call it an insurrection, in my opinion, is a bold-faced lie. Watching the TV footage of those who entered the Capitol and walked through Statuary Hall showed people in an orderly fashion staying between the stanchions and ropes taking videos and pictures. You know, if you didn't know the TV footage was a video from January the 6th, you would actually think it was a normal tourist visit. Mariella, uh, don't believe your lying eyes is what Andrew Clyde is saying. And what's tr interesting is it's come to light since he made those statements that he was one of the guys in the U.S. House who was trying to bar the door against the people, the peaceful tourists who were trying to get in just to see the chamber. You know, uh, it is astounding to me to see this happening in the United States because this is exactly the playbook of the Chavistas in Venezuela. Uh, when you have seen something with your own eyes, they just tell you that what you saw is not true. And it's just, you know, a normal tourist visit was uh, January 6th. Who is going to believe that? I, I just, you know, it, it is, you know, a lot of people will say, well, the Chavistas are socialists. Right? Can you compare them to the GOP? It's not the ideology, it is the strategy, how they can manipulate what you just saw and it make it, you know, something that is not true. I, it, it is baffling to me. I just cannot understand it. 
Uh, Mariella, we're having a little trouble with your audio, so Sam Burma's Dawes is going to try to work on it for a few minutes. Jim, I want to get you into this, and, and, and certainly Renee and Chuck as well. This could almost be something you would laugh out in a, in a kind of a crazy way, except this is more and more the, the narrative that's being spun by Republicans on Capitol Hill. What insurrection? Me? Right, right. And uh, now, look, you've got, you've got, uh, you do have. Um, there's a Democratic effort in in the U.S. House to 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 cite uh, Andrew Clyde, who who made that, uh, who was behind the clip that you just uh, played, and Jody Heiss for their remarks on 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 the insurrection that they said did not happen. Uh, although although Andrew Clyde did concede that there was a riot outside the Capitol. Uh, what, what, what was one thing was interesting this week, uh, Bill. There was some, there was some real there there was some kind of some Twitter noise from Gabriel Sterling. Now he he's 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 the the Secretary of State aide who 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 got in front of the uh, up in front of the Capitol and said that that these that these that these lies have to stop or somebody's going to get killed. That was before the January sixth uh, insurrection, and yes, people did die. Uh, but he, he, but he tweeted out. He, he, he's making some noise that kind of indicates that he may be thinking about a run against U.S. Representative Lucy McBath in the sixth district. And and he's it, it, the the basis of his argument to Republicans appears to be that that uh, that Republicans are going to have to 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 drop the big lie if they want to win. I find that's going to be a very interesting test of where the Republican Party is is headed, I think. Chuck? You know, uh, Bill, I had to look up where Clyde was representative from. I don't recall ever hearing his name before, which probably explains why he was giving that message. He's clearly running for re-election and trying to gin the base up to to come out and support him uh, when he clearly knows it's false. I mean, it reminds me of the move in the 90s. You may remember this, Wag the Dog. Uh, that literally, if you just tell a lie often enough, some people will believe it. A literal P.T. Barnum uh, uh, political strategy. Uh, that's why it's so important to call out these, uh, these lies. It's why it's so important uh, that there be an independent investigation. It's why it's so important uh, to not tolerate this in the future, because the reality is this could easily repeat in the future. There is uh, a... Uh a civil war happening within the Republican Party. We're watching it play out. You know, I, I, as as Chuck just said, you know, the, these these lies, the big lie, is 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 a bullet train to the base of a certain uh, you know element within the Republican Party. What it does portend, though, is the future national implication and reach. Of the Republican Party, um, as as they foster these this misinformation to their base, they are alienating um, moderate Republicans. Uh, they're alienating uh, independents, others who would actually help a Republican coalition uh, get back into the White House. That's not going to happen as these lies are perpetuated for the base. Um, all right. You know what? I want to get our final break of the show out of the way early uh, because I do want to talk. This is a panel that really knows a lot about what's happening with 
immigration. I have one more political story I'd like to talk about after the break, and then we're going to move on to hear some opinions about what's happening with what I think it's fair to say, and I will certainly let our panelists tell me if I'm wrong, a crisis right now at the southern border. This is Political Rewind. couple of quick program notes before we continue with our conversation. Uh, tomorrow on Political Rewind, we're going to talk with uh, two of the most knowledgeable mayors that we have on this show. There are several of them, but tomorrow we'll uh, have uh, uh, Julie Smith uh, on the show, along with uh, Dina Holiday uh, Ingram. Uh, to talk about uh, their communities and uh, also be joined by Adam Van Brimmer from Savannah. I'm looking forward to that conversation. And then on Wednesday, uh, we're going to, again, go off a little bit in a different direction. Our special guest is going to be Anna Sale. She hosts one of the most popular podcasts in the country, Death, Sex, and Money. And she's uh, written a book about how tough it is Let's talk about hard things in terms of talking about very touchy subjects. I'm looking forward to that uh, conversation uh, uh, on Wednesday's show, so I hope you'll stay with us. Uh, today, Jim Galloway, Chuck Cook, Renee Alegria, Mariella Romero are uh, with us. Um, all right, Mariella, I understand we've got your audio back, which I'm really pleased about. Let me start with you, and then everybody gets to weigh in on this. Am I correct to say that we have a crisis right now in terms of the rush of people, in many ways, in many cases, young people trying to cross the border and our ability to understand how to deal with them. Is crisis a fair word right now? Well, Bill, one thing I have learned from my interviews with Charles Cook over the years is that the media is very quick to call it a crisis. <laughs> and we have to put a lot of things into context. So I, certainly there is a, you know, a, a rush of people, like you mentioned, in uh, the government's inability to process them as quickly as some advocates and, 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 and you know, the public would like certainly creates uh, the perception of a crisis. But things, you know, there are things that are working and are getting better the the time frame for the detention has gone down uh the ability of the government to process a little quicker is also it has improved but of course it's never enough it's never quick enough it's never there's no resources that can handle uh the you know the influx of people uh in an adequate manner but i will not venture to call it a crisis, but it's something that we journalists like to utilize, you know, because it gets the attention of the public. But I would love to hear if Charles will call it a crisis. Well, well, let me let me put it in context first, Chuck, and then Renee and Jim. Um, are we is there a double standard at work here? I, I think it's fair to say that we that, that people would be screaming about a crisis if Donald Trump were still president, and Joe Biden's the, the one area where his approval numbers are not particularly strong is in how he's dealing with immigration. Nevertheless, is there some hesitancy 
because people tend to like Joe Biden to, to be unwilling to say how desperate the situation is at the border. Well, well, let's be clear. Joe Biden called it a crisis uh, when he was interviewed uh, in, in March about this. Um, you know, here's the, the reality on the ground today. So I ask you this question. Have you seen any reports from the border recently on nightly news? No, because apparently it's not a crisis anymore. It doesn't get the attention. I think a lot of Joe Biden's numbers, poll numbers on this reflect the negative reporting that was going on. But let's let's look at that. I mean, let's, I mean the facts are really the most important thing on this show. Um, is that the numbers are down month over month, uh, uh, less, fewer numbers of unaccompanied minors are coming in. The number of people coming up, what they call apprehended, rose in April. But what they don't tell you is a large number of those were reapprehensions. They just count apprehensions, not human beings. And we actually saw the numbers drop of human beings coming in because the reality is fewer people are coming across at this point because the weather is changing. It's getting hotter. It's very much a seasonal thing uh, that happens, and we're seeing that. Now, the, the, the positive thing that came out of this is the Biden administration has restructured HHS, Department of Health and Human Services. They're down now complying with the lawsuit that only lets CBP hold people for 72 hours. They only had 400 kids in custody, less, uh, more, less time than that. So the good news is it's being fixed. And the bad news is it took three months to fix it. Um, so I, I think crisis, yeah, you know, maybe that was, but I don't think it is, it is anymore. Renee? I, I agree with, with Chuck and, uh, and Mariela that, that uh, uh, the numbers are just plummeting, right? It is seasonal. Um, we, we do see this happen every spring. I, I actually was uh, born and raised in Arizona, one of the border states. And, you know, as soon as, soon as uh, it hits late May, uh, you know, it crosses into the triple digits, and that's that. Like you don't you don't see the numbers uh, that you did from February uh, through May. So it's it's something that happens every year. This is not new. I think what is new is is are the images that we saw under the Trump administration of kids in cages. The the fact that there you know w was was an element of of cruelty that so many perceived was was happening there at the border. And I think those images are fueling the debate into our referring to it as a crisis. Do I think it needs to be fixed? Obviously, yes. And, and we need to address that. What, what I what I think is important, um, and this is this is the perception of immigration as a whole, um, you know, in the U.S., but it, it, it it's the H-1B visa, which is the visa for skilled workers um, in, in this country. It's been referred to by many as America's secret weapon to being uh, on top as a country. Uh, you need a, at least a bachelor's degree uh, to be considered with many years uh, work experience in the industry of, of, of what you're applying for. Um, you know, we rank in, in the, middle, the middle section as a country in education, math, science. If we didn't have that H-1B visa, we would not be competitive uh, in the global economy. And, you know, we, we, we hear a lot about, okay, um, quote, unskilled labor and we, why we need folks, you know, working construction, working, you know, in the fields, et cetera. Uh, without that H-1B visa, 
you know, our, our innovation would be, would be a disaster. And I, 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 I do think that it's important that listeners really take this into account. Um, there are many layers to this, obviously, right? But for America to be competitive, um, it really needs to address the immigration issue. It's not just, you know, folks from Central America coming in. This is brains from all over the globe wanting to come in and contribute to what we do best, which is create, uh, be innovative, uh, technology, et cetera. So I, I, I just want to make that clear and make that point. Uh, yeah, a couple things, uh, Bill. Number one, uh, all this this discussion is is happening in the in one of the uh, one of the facets of the the pandemic has been that uh, the U.S.'s uh, birth rate has declined just tremendously, and uh, it is we are we are dropping below uh, re- the 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 rate for replacement. So there's there's that, but we've got just. There's a situation at the border, yes. Uh, there's uh, the, 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 the visa uh, uh, issue that Rene was talking about. There is the additional uh, uh, issue of with the Biden administration of international refugees uh, coming into the U.S. But, but to me, one of the, 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 the most the, – the perennial problem, the most persistent problem uh, has been the issue of DACA. And, and and since we've got Chuck here, I, I would really like to know what the Biden administration is doing for for these 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 uh, these people who were carried across the border as children and have grown up in the U.S. and still don't have a place in U.S. society. Uh, let's just make the point, Chuck, that on Friday, uh, President Biden had a meeting with uh, half a dozen young DACA recipients um, and uh, uh to try to call attention to his uh, hope that he can figure out some way to give DACA recipients uh, greater protection in terms of staying in the country, Chuck. Thank you for pointing that out, Bill. One thing to remember, the DACA case is actually right now in front of a federal court judge in Texas who could literally strike down DACA tomorrow. We're literally waiting on a decision from Judge Hennon. Um, and I don't, I have, nobody knows what he will do. Uh, what President Biden has done is try to call attention to it. Of course, his uh, U.S. Citizenship Act expands DACA uh, to uh, take in more kids that came in after 2007. Remember, DACA is nine years old. There are people with DACA who are 40 that came here within the required time from the Obama administration. There are still young men and women today who are getting DACA, but we are approaching the end life of DACA. Because as DACA was originally conceived, you had to get here before 2007 and be 15. Well, do the math. That's coming up next year. Uh, So DACA is about over, and it will just be those individuals that have DACA. Now, one of the good things that the Biden administration has done on DACA, Jim, is that he has reauthorized travel under DACA. Uh, That does enable some young men and women with DACA, if they happen to fall in love with a U.S. citizen, to actually get permanent residence in the United States. But, you know, and, and the U.S. House has passed the DREAM Act. So really, maybe this is a better question for Chuck Schumer. Why aren't you putting the DREAM Act on the floor? It is a standalone bill. Uh, I let Republicans vote against it. Um, I think what they'll probably end up doing, because immigration is very much an economic issue, 
I would not be shocked if they attached um, the the immigration bills like DACA, like the Promise Act for people with TPS, like the agricultural worker bills, which are supported by some of our Republican congressmen, attach that to a reconciliation bill and pass it with 51 votes. That would not shock me at all. Um, but where we are right now is these kids are, and many of them are these adults, are literally hanging around with a guillotine hanging over their heads, waiting for something to actually so, happen. Chuck, if I could follow up on that real briefly and then get everybody else involved. Um, the uh, First of all, the White House has said, yes, they're willing to pass immigration by reconciliation if necessary. Uh, if they don't think they can get Republican support, but that assumes they can get every Democrat uh, in favor of this. And immigration continues to be an enormously controversial issue, even in some Democratic states and districts. Um, but here's my larger question. Is the immigration bill, you can help us, is the immigration bill the administration is proposing right now the DREAM Act that's passed the House, is it solely focused on DACA? Is there not a bigger immigration bill that the administration is uh, 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 trying to uh, move through Congress? Yes, the Biden administration, and this is very different from what Obama did, from what Bush did, from Clinton. They actually proposed a bill called the U.S. Citizenship Act, which fixes every area of immigration. You know, when you hear about, hey, we need to have a comprehensive bill. Well, this is literally a comprehensive bill that deals with Future flow, which deals with uh, uh, ability to work in the United States, it deals with visas, it deals with the undocumented, it deals with DACA kids, uh, it deals with everything. And it, honestly, it's a pretty good bill. Uh, it's not radical, it's not crazy, and it addresses, I think, one of the key issues that Jim brought up, which is our shrinking population. You know, one thing, Jim, that people don't realize, the census numbers came out, we have the same number of people today as we had 10 years ago. And we added a million immigrants a year. So not only do we not, are we not meeting replacement level, our current immigration system isn't even meeting our, our, meeting our replacement level. So we actually need to up our immigration if we want to remain competitive in a global economy. Mariella? Correct. Yes. And, um, you know, another thing to consider is, you know, the, the politics of this. Uh, many people say, okay, that comprehensive immigration bill that uh, the Biden administration has proposed doesn't have a chance with Republicans, et cetera. And, you know, the most pragmatic thing is to, you know, create different bills that address different aspects of immigration and they can pass those things separately. But uh, what I've been seeing on, on our side in our coverage is that a lot of activists are really, really pushing the administration to do something about immigration, because they are saying that the Latino vote is not going to show up for Democrats if they fail uh, to pass uh, an immigration, a comprehensive immigration bill. So uh, it's interesting to see uh, that narrative from the grassroots groups that really brought the Latino vote for the Democrats this past election. I, I think it's interesting that this is yet another uh, example of the Biden administration swinging for the fences. Um, he's, he, he's doing extraordinary things, uh, just in terms of the scope of what he's proposing uh, across categories, right? Immigration is, is no different. I, I, do, I do want to remind uh, everyone listening um, just what dreamers 
represent in, in the Hispanic community. And to Mariela's point, how, how that then connects to Latino voter registration and the activism within the Latino community. So dreamers, um, you know, they, they, they hold a passionate place in the heart of immigrant families um, that come to the U.S. These, these, uh, these immigrants, these parents come here to forge a better life for their children and to see those dreamers, their children enrolled in college, doing what they set out to do means a lot. They are the shining example of what uh, the immigrant journey is in the United States. So, you know, you, you take that, you take the fact that there were uh, over 50% of Latino uh, voter registration for the first time, it was historic within the, the community um, in, in 2020. What galvanized that? What pushed that? Younger American-born Hispanics pushed that. They care about DACA. They care about what dreamers represent. So the, the ramifications of, of the policies and the sides that you're on really will sway if Latino voters vote for you or they do not. Jim Galloway, all of us on this panel have watched for well over two decades efforts to pass immigration, comprehensive immigration reform. It is one of the hardest, thorniest problems that the United States Congress has ever faced. And I frankly, it's unfortunate, it's hard to imagine, even with reconciliation, that suddenly we're going to get a comprehensive immigration bill passed in the year, uh, it, during the Biden years. Yeah, yeah, and 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 Chuck, you correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think uh, uh, I don't I don't think the immigration reform bill will be would be subject to to reconciliation. Those are that's pretty much restricted to budget uh, uh, budget issues. Or am I wrong here? They they, they yeah no they believe Chuck they I mean, can pass it with reconciliation. Yeah. They think yeah. they've gotten the, they think that the Senate parliamentarian has given them broad latitude yeah. on any number of issues, right, Chuck? Absolutely, I think I think they think they can do it. No, they they. they get it by uh, the parliamentarian so that's a very real possibility it's uh, well, nevertheless the parliamentarian joe uh, joe manchin will agree to it that's that's really the yeah, yeah, it's, it, but, 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 but the problem the problem i think bill is is look in this and and, and if, if that's the case then i think re reconciliation may be the only path because in this climate where you have mitch mcconnell saying he's going to 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 block a hundred percent of what the biden administration is up to i can't see uh, any breach in the Republican wall in this U.S. Senate? There's not. Yeah. There's not. Yeah. I said that's my point, Renee, is that we've watched immigration reform come and go and fail over and over and over again. One of the things that struck me in hearing you all talk about, well, it's not a crisis. We have this surge every spring. Then it goes down in the summer. Is That's the point. It comes and goes year after year, the same thing over and over again. Real quick, you've got about 30 seconds on this, Renee. <laughs> listen, listen, I, I yes, it, it's easy to be jaded about policies that, that don't uh, make it into law, but let's, let's remind ourselves that this is, this is an American policy that, that is for the betterment of the future of this country. All right. 
I got to interrupt you because we're so out of time. But Renee Alegria, Mariello Romero, Chuck Cook, Jim Galloway, great conversation tomorrow. Tifton Mayor Julie Smith, East Point Mayor Dina Holiday Ingram join us to talk about what's happening around Georgia. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Yeah, wear a mask. Figure out how you want to respond to the CDC. And if you haven't gotten a vaccine, get one soon. See you all tomorrow. Thank you.